the contribution the tribunal has made to the development of substantive international criminal and international humanitarian law is well known. For example, the International Court of Justice referred extensively to the work of the tribunal in the case Bosnia brought against Serbia alleging genocide. Nonetheless, the tribunal's contribution at the level of procedural law has been no less significant. And today, I will discuss the impact the procedural innovations have had upon the fairness and efficiency of the tribunal's proceedings. For the purposes of this lecture, an issue of fairness and efficiency arises when the proper application of a measure designed to facilitate the progress of trial proceedings calls for a balancing of the advantages that measure brings to the trial with the interests of the accused, victims, witnesses, and sometimes the public. From its first two cases, it was evident that the tribunal would face criticism for the length of its trials. Tadic, a case with one accused, 86 prosecution witnesses, 60 defense witnesses, and a transcript of 7,015 pages lasted six months. The second case, Blaskic, with a single accused, 102 prosecution witnesses, 47 defense witnesses, nine chamber witnesses, and a transcript of 25,398 pages lasted two years and nine months. Compared to trials in domestic jurisdictions, which generally do not run for more than two weeks, the duration of the first two tribunal trials would have been viewed as long. And even in comparison with the Nuremberg trials, the first set of international criminal trials, they would have been viewed as being of a long duration. However, the Nuremberg trials, which were completed in 11 months, relied heavily on documentary evidence. Not surprisingly, the tribunal came under pressure from the Security Council and the international community. And over the past 10 years, it has adopted a number of measures to expedite trial proceedings. It is in relation to these measures that the issue of fairness and efficiency is principally implicated. But a question arises as to whether these measures compromise the rights of the accused and the interests of the public. I turn now to the completion strategy. Unsurprisingly, after the first set of cases was disposed by the tribunal, and it was evident to the international community, the Security Council, and indeed the tribunal itself, that the trials were too long, it became clear that a strategy had to be devised to expedite proceedings. Consequently, in 2003, the tribunal itself 
in reaction to an estimation that proceeding as it was at that time, trials would last until 2016, submitted a proposal to the Security Council and thus came into being the completion strategy requiring investigations to be completed by the end of 2004, trials by the end of 2008, and all work by the end of 2010. The Security Council also called on the Tribunal to concentrate on the prosecution and the trial of the most senior leaders suspected of bearing responsibility for crimes within the Tribunal's jurisdiction and to transfer to competent national jurisdictions cases involving those who did not have that level of responsibility. Since the institution of the completion strategy, many questions have been asked about the propriety of a judicial institution working under that kind of time pressure. And in fact, in, in one case, uh, defense counsel submitted that the completion strategy uh, compromised the independence of judges. That submission was rejected by the trial chamber. What is clear is that the tribunal has continued to reform its procedures in order to further promote expeditiousness in its proceedings, while ensuring that fairness to the accused is not compromised. I discussed now the adversarial system and the inquisitorial system in relation to the tribunal's procedures. The tribunal's trial procedures are basically common law adversarial, as can be seen by the following features. There is an independent prosecutor and an accused, and in the middle is the trial chamber comprised of three judges, who in the absence of a jury are triers of both fact and law. And importantly, the collection of evidence is in the hands of the parties. On that basis then, in principle, the system would appear to be party-driven, unlike that which obtains in civil law inquisitorial jurisdictions, where the system is driven by the judge. However, over the years, in order to address the slow pace of trials, many amendments have been made to the tribunal's rules of procedure and evidence incorporating features drawn from the more efficient civil law inquisitorial system. Fairness is the overarching principle of any legal system based on the rule of law. In criminal proceedings, the concept of fairness is reflected principally in the duty of the court to protect the rights of the accused, and it is also encompassed in the doctrine of equality of arms between the prosecution and the defense. It is embodied in the right to a fair hearing and also embraces 
the other rights reflected in all major human rights treaties, including the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The principle of fairness has been confirmed time and again at the tribunal. For instance, in the Nira Mashuko et al. case, Judge David Hunt issued an opinion stating, there may be difficulties placed in the way of an accused in the course of applying an interest of justice test in various situations, so that the trial is not a perfect one, such as the need to protect victims and witnesses. But the absence of perfection does not mean that the trial will not be a fair one. However, the interest of justice cannot be served where the accused is denied a fair trial. Fair trial rights are provided for in Articles 20 and 21 of the Tribunal Statute. I consider it beyond argument that the fair trial requirement in these articles reflects a rule of customary international law. Article 20, paragraph 1 of the Tribunal Statute is significant for the positive obligation that is placed on trial chambers to ensure a fair and expeditious trial, a duty which has been treated as the very object and purpose of the statute and rules. This obligation extends beyond the specific right of an accused to be tried without undue delay under Article 21, paragraph 4C, to embrace the trial process and the administration of justice as a whole, including the prosecutor. I turn now to the main thrust of this lecture, the expediting measures. The main challenge the tribunal has faced in its groundbreaking work is to devise mechanisms that expedite its proceedings without prejudicing the rights of the accused to a fair trial. Several procedures drawn mainly from the civil law inquisitorial system have been introduced in trials at the tribunal for the purpose of expediting proceedings. <clears throat> the following is an illustrative list of measures adopted by the tribunal to expedite proceedings. General pretrial measures to facilitate preparations for trial. Then there is Rule 89F, Rule 92 bis, Rule 92 ter, and Rule 92 quater, relating to the admission of evidence in written form. Rule 94, governing judicial notice. Rule 73 bis D, governing the reduction of indictments. Rules 48, 49, and 82B governing joinder. Rule 62 bis governing guilty pleas. And rules 65 ter, F, and 67A relating to 
defense disclosure. In my view, measures adopted to protect witnesses, including Rules 69, 75, and 79, also promote efficiency in the tribunal's proceedings. Obviously, with the time available for this presentation, it will not be possible to address all of these measures. I will, however, address some of the more significant. But before doing so, it is necessary to contextualize this analysis by mentioning the statutory authority of the judges to create and amend the rules. Article 15 of the statute mandates the judges of the tribunal to adopt rules of procedure and evidence for the conduct of pretrial, trial, and appellate proceedings. Although at first sight this, this does not appear to be an expediting measure, in my view, it is one of the most efficacious measures available to the tribunal in the conduct of its proceedings. The tribunal's judges enjoy a very broad rulemaking power. In contrast to domestic proceedings in many jurisdictions, where an act of parliament will be required to implement significant changes in the law, the tribunal judges are empowered to draft rules without having to depend on the political directorate, that is the Security Council, for approval. Judges themselves may not appreciate how important this lawmaking power is. It is used very frequently to respond to procedural and evidentiary issues as they arise during the proceedings. An interesting issue, but one which has never been raised, is whether there is a conflict between this lawmaking function of the judges and the judicial function, which they exercise in relation to the very same rules that they have made. This judicial function sometimes relates to a determination as to the legality of the rules themselves. The rules have been amended 42 times since their adoption in 1994. Amendments are usually made on the basis of recommendations from the Rules Committee, whose membership includes not only the judges, but also the Office of the Prosecutor, representatives of the Association of Defense Counsel, and the Registry, although these last three participate in a non-voting capacity. However, an important safeguard of the fair trial rights of the accused is Rule 6D, which provides that an amendment to the rules shall not operate to prejudice the rights of the accused in any pending case. This perhaps unique lawmaking power of the tribunal's judges stands in contrast to the corresponding situation at the International Criminal Court, where, although the judges may recommend rules, their ultimate adoption is dependent on the approval of the state's parties to the Rome Statute. 
I turn now to uh, written evidence in lieu of oral testimony, rules 89F, 92BIS, 92TER, and 92QUATER. Generally, evidence in the form of written statements is not used in the common law adversarial system, which has a distinct preference for the orality of evidence in criminal cases, with the accused or the prosecution having the right to cross-examine a witness of the other party. The influence of the common law preference for the orality of evidence expressed in the rules prior to 2001 has since that time been neutralized by subsequent amendments authorizing the admission of written evidence and gradually broadening the scope of the relevant rules. The tribunal has adopted these procedures to expedite trials, which can include numbers of witnesses ranging from 100 to 400. As a general rule, pursuant to Rule 89F, a chamber may receive the evidence of a witness in written form if it is in the interest of justice to do so. But the most significant specific measure for the reception of written evidence is one that was introduced in 2000 in Rule 92-BIS. It is the procedure whereby evidence is given in written form in lieu of oral testimony, whether it be in the form of witness statements or transcripts of previous testimony, so long as the evidence goes to proof of a matter other than the acts and conduct of the accused as charged in the indictment. This requires an explanation. In most of the trials before the tribunals, and certainly those in which political or military leaders are charged, the alleged crimes have not been committed by the accused personally, physically, but by others, example, soldiers and paramilitaries, under the control of the accused or as part of a joint criminal enterprise. Much of the prosecution case in trials at the tribunal is concerned with, adu with adducing this so-called crime-based evidence. So long as the evidence is of that kind, it may be introduced in written form. By way of a statement or the transcript of, a, of previous testimony. Of course, in order to prove its case, the prosecution will also have to lead other evidence linking the accused directly to the crimes. And usually this comes from insiders, that is, witnesses close to the accused and who may have knowledge of his role in the crimes charged. A statement can be given by a witness to a party under established procedures, including an attestation to the statement's accuracy and then admitted into evidence 
without cross-examination. The bulk of crime-based evidence can often be admitted as statements under Rule 92bis. The admission of written evidence is one thing, but what if a party wishes to cross-examine the witness? The evidence of a witness in some cases may be admitted without ever being subjected to any cross-examination. Here again, the tribunal has been greatly influenced by the civil law system in which the judge, who is required to discover the truth, is very active. In the common law system, a party will determine whether it wishes to cross-examine, with the judge retaining the right to control the cross-examination by various means, including disallowing improper questions. But at the tribunal, so far as the procedure under Rule 92 bis is concerned, the determination as to whether there is to be cross-examination on written evidence is made by the trial chamber. A party, and it is also important to bear in mind that the defense can also use this procedure in presenting its case, will apply to a trial chamber for the admission of a written statement or a transcript of previous testimony. The chamber grants the application if it is of the view that the evidence is crime-based evidence, that is, evidence in which the accused is not personally, physically involved. The trial chamber will then consider whether cross-examination will be allowed. In some instances, while a written statement does not go to the acts and conduct of the accused, it may nonetheless touch upon a live and critical issue of the case which would warrant cross-examination. For example, in superior responsibility cases, where a written statement touches upon the acts of subordinates of the accused, the statement may generally be admitted under Rule 92 bis, as it does not pertain, strictly speaking, <coughs> to the acts and conduct of the accused. However, because this issue is so proximate to the accused's responsibility and is a live and critical issue of the case, the trial chamber will decide that cross-examination of the maker of the statement uh, I turn out to Rule 92 Ter. Under this rule, evidence which goes to proof of the acts and conduct of the accused may be admitted in written form under the following conditions. Firstly, the witness must be present in court. Secondly, the witness must be available for cross-examination and any questioning by the judges. And thirdly, the witness attests that the written evidence accurately reflects that witness's declaration and what the witness would say if examined. <clears throat> I turn now to Rule 92 Quater. Another example of the extent to which the admission of written evidence has been expanded is the introduction of Rule 92 Quater, which allows for the admission of written evidence by way of statement, 
or transcript of previous testimony of a person who has subsequently died or who can no longer with reasonable diligence be traced or who is physically or mentally unable to testify. While Rule 92 Quarter states that the fact that the evidence goes to proof of acts and conduct of an accused may be a factor against the admission of such evidence, such admission is not specifically prohibited. Although common law jurisdictions have a distinct preference for live testimony, some do have procedures allowing written statements in circumstances similar to Rule 92 Quatuor. In 1988, the United Kingdom instituted such a procedure under its Criminal Justice Act. And in 1995, Jamaica amended its Evidence Act to do very much the same. Note that those provisions, however, contain three, three important safeguards. First, the court has discretion to exclude the statement if its admission will result in unfairness to the accused. Secondly, provision is made for the calling of evidence pertaining to the credibility of a witness which could have been put to him in cross-examination had the witness given evidence in person. And thirdly, any previous inconsistent statements of a witness may be introduced. The measures under Rules 89F, 92 bis, 92 ter, and 92 quater are all examples of procedures that have largely been inspired by the civil law system and that have been introduced for the purpose of expediting proceedings. Where there is no cross-examination under 92 bis, the time saved is the time that have, would have been used for examination in chief and cross-examination. Where there is cross-examination, the time saved is the time that would have been used for examination in chief. Global time saved is not always readily noticeable because even when there is no examination in chief, the party calling the witness is allowed to ask certain basic questions and to introduce documents. One final point that should be emphasized in relation to the admission of written evidence in lieu of oral testimony is an important procedural safeguard that ensures the fairness of the use of that evidence. Evidence admitted that is not subjected to cross-examination, such as under Rules 92 bis and 92 quater, may only be relied upon in a chamber's final judgment if it is supported by other evidence adduced in the trial. Such evidence may include other witness testimony, documentary evidence, or audio and video evidence. It is in this manner that the joint aims of efficiency and fairness are satisfied in trials before the tribunal.
The next measure I wish to deal with is judicial notice under Rule 94. Apart from the civil law inspired procedures we have discussed today, there exists a procedure stemming from the common law system. That procedure is judicial notice. At the tribunal, judicial notice is divided into, firstly, notice of facts of common knowledge not subject to reasonable dispute. And secondly, judicial notice of adjudicated facts or documentary evidence from other proceedings at the tribunal <coughs> as set out in Rule 94. On a general level, judicial notice is a time-saving mechanism meant to avoid stating the obvious during trial. Originally, the rule only contained what is currently included in Rule 94A, namely <coughs> facts of common knowledge. This is the aspect of judicial notice with which lawyers in common law jurisdictions would be familiar. The more controversial procedure of judicial notice of adjudicated facts was added in 1998. The notion of adjudicated facts covers situations where a trial chamber makes a certain factual finding. For example, Bosnia and Herzegovina was the most multi-ethnic of all the republics of the former Yugoslavia with a pre-war population of 44% Muslims, 31% Serbs, and 17% Croats. This finding is either unchallenged on appeal or confirmed by the appeals chamber. And that fact thus becomes adjudicated a second trial chamber may then subsequently admit that fact in its ongoing proceedings, provided certain conditions are met. I mention the more important of those conditions. One, the fact must not contain characteristics of an essentially legal nature. Secondly, the fact must not be based on an agreement between the parties of the original proceedings. And thirdly, the fact must clearly not be subject to pending appeal or review. Since by virtue of this procedure, facts adjudicated in a previous case may be admitted in an ongoing trial, the trial process is thereby expedited. The prosecution does not have to lead evidence to establish that fact. Once the fact has been admitted, a rebuttable presumption is created, thereby shifting to the accused the burden of contesting the fact. This shift has given rise to much debate as to whether there is a breach of the principle that the burden of proof 
is on the prosecution. The procedure is also open to the defense, although in the vast majority of cases, it is only utilized by the prosecution. Since the 1998 amendments, chambers have used the Rule 94B provision relating to facts in practically all cases before the tribunal. Hundreds of adjudicated facts may be judicially noticed at once, thereby expediting the presentation of crime-based evidence. On the other hand, Rule 94A has been used sparingly. The scope of the indictments at the tribunal make the use of adjudicated facts a potentially powerful tool for promoting efficiency, but the fairness of the accused must always be preserved. And the criteria that I have outlined above are designed to ensure that an accused is not placed in the position where evidence critical to his case is presented in the form of adjudicated facts. I turn now to the reduction of the indictment under Rule 73 Base D. Under this rule, the trial chamber has the power to call on the prosecution at the pre-trial conference to shorten the length of the examination in chief and to determine the number of witnesses it may call and the time available to it for presenting evidence. The powers of the trial chamber to introduce time-saving measures were substantially enhanced in 2003 and 2006 as a result of an amendment empowering a trial chamber to reduce the number of counts in the indictment and fix the number of crime sites or incidents in respect of which evidence may be called while ensuring that the counts and the sites or incidents are reasonably representative of the crimes charged. The representative nature of the crimes is determined on the basis of all relevant circumstances, including the crimes charged in the indictment, their classification and nature, the places where they are alleged to have been committed, their scale, and the victims of the crimes. This provision has had a significant effect on the expeditiousness of the tribunal's trial procedures. Because although not specifically mentioned in the rule itself, as a matter of practice, indictments have been reduced by one third. Reducing an indictment can also be a way to ensure that an accused receives a fair trial. Some indictments are of such a vast scale that an accused's right to adequate time to prepare his defense is placed in jeopardy. All of this only serves to highlight the limitations of international criminal courts and the need for other mechanisms to address post-conflict challenges, such as truth and reconciliation commissions, 
national trials, and individual complaint procedures to bodies such as the Human Rights Council and similar regional bodies. Conclusion. In my view, the measures we have adopted to increase the fairness and efficiency of our proceedings meet, to borrow the, to borrow the words of Lord Bingham, the paramount object of our proceedings which is to achieve justice in the aftermath of the war that engulfed the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Each measure was adopted after balancing carefully the need to facilitate the progress of our trial proceedings, the need to protect the rights of the accused and the interests of victims and witnesses, without whom our pursuit of justice would come to a halt, and the need to take into account the interests of the public. And I believe that as a result, we have succeeded in ensuring the overall fairness of our proceedings. An ongoing concern at the tribunal is the alignment of procedures from the two legal systems the adversarial and inquisitorial models in order to ensure that the final product is faithful to the guiding precept of the work of the tribunal, namely fairness. Therefore, in my view, the system at the tribunal is ultimately neither adversarial nor inquisitorial. It is neither judge-driven nor party-driven, it is fairness-driven. In conclusion, I'd like to quote something I wrote several years ago on this very topic. Here I quote, the factor that should facilitate the reconciliation of the two legal systems in proceedings at the tribunal is that both aim for and are required by customary international law to ensure the fairness of a trial. Where there is a conflict between the two systems and there is no clear governing provision in the statute or the rules, resolution must take place using the principle of fairness as the plane to smooth the edges in the alignment of the legal systems. Thank you.